We're going to be learning in Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi, the fourth and final piece in Hilchus Rotzeach. This is the second piece on Halacha Perak Tes, Halacha Tesvav. And this piece continues the theme of the previous two pieces about the status of one witness who is believed in Egla Rufa. But in this piece, Rab Chaim is going to focus on the Raivid, who has a different understanding of this concept than the Rambam. The Rambam differentiates between whether that one witness is ordinarily a kosher witness or not, even though one witness is not believed, but it could be someone who would be theoretically a kosher witness, whereas the Raivid does not make that differentiation. He differentiates between how many people are testifying. So for the Raivid, it's a numbers game that in these halachas of Egla Rufa and Sota, where we don't require valid testimony, it's simply a question of which side has more people agreeing with it. So Rab Chaim is going to explain the Raivid's view. The Rambam writes, If one kosher witness says, I know the murderer, and two women or two non-kosher witnesses contradict him, and they say, you didn't see the murderer, ain orphan. So there was no Egla Arufa. In other words, we believe the first kosher witness, and there is no Egla Arufa. Now, in the opposite case, If two non-kosher witnesses say, we know the murderer, and one kosher witness contradicts them and says, you didn't see the murderer, orphim. So then there was an Egla Rufa. So in that case, we don't believe anyone. They all cancel each other out. And the Rambam explains the reason for this, even if there's a hundred non-kosher witnesses, and there's only one kosher witness contradicting them, we consider it like one witness against one witness because all the non-kosher witnesses do not have the status of a valid testimony. So even though there's much more of them numbers-wise than the one kosher witness, he still has the same status as all the other witnesses and they all cancel each other out. So that's why in the case where the non-kosher witnesses say we know the murderer and one kosher witness contradicts them, we don't believe anyone and there is Egla Rufa. Now, the Ravid disagrees with this, and he says, This idea that the one kosher witness has an elevated status and he's equal to all the non-kosher witnesses that are against him only applies when the kosher witness came first. So he says, I know the murderer, and then the non-kosher witnesses contradict him. In the other case where the kosher witness came second, so then says the Ravid, Then we do follow the majority opinions, even though they're being contradicted by a kosher witness. So according to the Ravid, if the non-kosher witnesses come first and they say we know the murderer, and then a kosher witness contradicts them, so in that case we follow the majority of opinions, and since there are more non-kosher witnesses, witnesses against the kosher witness, so we believe them. So basically the debate between the Rambam and the Ravid is in the case where the non-kosher witnesses say we know the murderer, then a kosher witness contradicts them. According to the Rambam, they all cancel
cancel each other out, even though there's more non-kosher witnesses because they all have the same status versus the kosher witnesses' testimony. And according to the Raivid, we do believe the non-kosher witnesses, so there is no Egla Rufa in that case because they are the majority of opinions. Now, the question Rab Chaim asks on the Raivid's approach is that we do find this sort of distinction in the Gemara between when the kosher witness comes first or second. Because the Gemara says that if the kosher witness comes first, so then he has the status of as if he's two witnesses. But if he comes second, he does not get the status of two witnesses. So there is a precedent for this type of distinction. But the problem is that we do not find the Ravid's distinction in the Gemara. So the Gemara mentions this idea that when one kosher witness is contradicting multiple non-kosher witnesses, they all have the same status. And it does not differentiate like the Ravid did between whether the kosher witness was first or second. So the Gemara seems to be saying that when it comes to the principle of elevating the testimony of the kosher witness to the status of as if it's two witnesses, so there the Gemara says clearly that it only applies if he comes first. But with regards to the other concept that one kosher witness is equal to multiple non-kosher witnesses, so Rab Chaim says, Din zehu that's a fundamental halacha within their testimonies. That one kosher witness's testimony is the equivalent of even multiple, even a hundred or a thousand non-kosher witnesses. They're all considered equal. And the Gemara never limits that to when the kosher witness came first. So why does the Ravid impose this distinction that seems to go against the framework of the Gemara? So in order to explain this comment of the Ravid, Rab Chaim reviews a little bit of how he explained the Rambam in the previous pieces. The Rambam himself differentiates between when the kosher witness came first, where he is believed and there's no Egla Rufa, versus where he came second, where nobody is believed and they all cancel each other out. So what is the basis for that distinction? Shouldn't we say that in all cases, they all cancel each other out? So Rab Chaim reviews his general explanation, which is based on what the Rambam wrote in the previous halacha, that the principle of that the Torah considers one witness to have the status of two only applies to a kosher witness, not a non-kosher witness. So even though non-kosher witnesses are believed in these cases, but according to the Rambam, they do not get the status of two witnesses. So now the case according to the Rambam, where the one witness witness is believed against the multiple non-kosher witnesses is talking about when they come at different times. So if they all came together, then they would all cancel each other's testimony out. But in this case, the kosher witness came first. And then after his testimony was accepted, the non-kosher witnesses came. So this explains the distinction that the Rambam is making. If the kosher witness comes first, so his testimony is accepted, it gets locked in, we believe him, and now he has the status of two. So when the non-kosher witnesses come afterwards to contradict him, we don't believe them because now they're going up against two witnesses witnesses. On the other hand, if the non-kosher witnesses come first, so their testimony does not get accepted, they do not get the status of two witnesses. So when the kosher witness contradicts them afterwards, it's like bivas achas. It's as if they all came at the same time, so they all cancel each other out. Even though technically the kosher witness came after 
kosher, the non-kosher witnesses, but halacha views it as if they all came at the same time because the non-kosher witnesses' testimony was never accepted. So that explains the distinction that the Rambam makes. Now, based on that, says Rab Chaim, this explains what the Raivid is trying to say because the Raivid in the previous halacha disagreed with the Rambam. He holds that the rule of Komokom Shamina Torah, that the Torah elevated the status of one witness in these cases to be like two, that that applies even to non-kosher witnesses. So now in this case where the non-kosher witnesses came and said they know the murderer, and then after that a kosher witness contradicted them, so again the Raivid Lashitaso, based on what he wrote in the previous halacha, he's going to hold that the first testimony of the non-kosher witnesses got locked in, so now the second witness is not believed to contradict them. So that's exactly what the Raivid is trying to say, that the Rambam's ruling would only apply if the kosher witness came first, which really means that they all came at the same time. So then all the witnesses would all just cancel each other out and there would be Egla Rufa. So the Raivit is saying, I agree with the Rambam's ruling when it's an actual case of Bivas Achas that all the witnesses came to court at the same time. But if the non-kosher witnesses came first, so then according to the Raivit, they do have the elevated status of two witnesses. So their testimony is accepted. So then when the kosher witness comes to contradict them afterwards, that's considered ze'acharzeh. It's considered a second testimony and he's not able to shake the first testimony. So based on this understanding, the Ravid's comment here follows from his previous comment in the previous halacha and it's the same basic debate. According to the Rambam, non-kosher witnesses are believed in these cases, but they don't have the status of testimony, so it's not as if they're two witnesses. Whereas the Ravid disagrees and he says anyone that's believed, whether they're one kosher witness or non-kosher witnesses, they all get the status of being like two kosher witnesses. But if so, Rab Chaim asks, why does the Raivid, when he formulates this critique of the Rambam, focus on the fact that we follow the majority of opinions, which are the non-kosher witnesses versus the one kosher witness? According to Rab Chaim's explanation, it has nothing to do with the fact that they're a majority, that they have more than one. Even if there was only one non-kosher witness who came first, so according to the Raivid, that would have the status of two witnesses and the one kosher witness would not be believed. So according to Rab Chaim's explanation of the Raivid, even if it's one non-kosher witness followed by one kosher witness contradicting him, still we would believe the first non-kosher witness because he or she has the status of two witnesses. So why is the Raivid adding in that there's a majority of non-kosher witnesses which doesn't necessarily need to be the case according to Rab Chaim's explanation? So Rab Chaim quotes that the Magid Mishnah in Hilchus Gerish in Yudbeis Chaf Aleph has a twist on some of these views. He suggests that maybe the principle of Haray that the one witness has the status of two witnesses does in fact apply to non-kosher witnesses, but only if there's two of them. So if there's one non-kosher witness, he or she does not get bolstered to the status of two witnesses. Only if there's two non-kosher witnesses, then they get bolstered to the status of like two witnesses. So that would mean that if a non-kosher witness comes and says, I know the murderer, and then a kosher witness 
contradicts him. So in that case, they all cancel each other out and we don't believe anyone and there is Egla Arufa. On the other hand, if two non-kosher witnesses say we know the murderer and then a kosher witness contradicts them, so the first two are believed like two kosher witnesses and there is no Egla Arufa. So says Rab Chaim, if the Raivet holds like the Magid Mishnah on this point, so that would explain his comment. Only if there's a majority, meaning two or more non-kosher witnesses that came at first, then the one kosher witness is not able to contradict them. But in fact, if there's only one non-kosher witness that came originally, then the one kosher witness is able to contradict him because one non-kosher witness does not have the status of two kosher witnesses. So if the Ravid agrees with the Magid Mishnah, then that would make sense of his language. But says Rab Chaim that really none of this is going to work within the Ravid himself because the Ravid also disagrees with the first part of the Rambam's halacha. When one kosher witness comes and says, I know the murderer, and then following that, the non-kosher witnesses come and contradict him. So according to the Rambam, we believe the first witness and there's no Egla Rufa. The Ravid disagrees and he says in that case, there would be Egla Rufa because it's like Palga Upalga. Both groups of witnesses the first kosher witness and the subsequent non-kosher witnesses, they all have the same status, so they just cancel each other out, so we don't believe anyone. So according to the Ravid, there is Egla Arufa. So obviously the Ravid is understanding that all these cases are bivas achas when all the groups of witnesses came at the same time. Because if it's Zeachar Zeh, so the kosher witness came first, so then of course he's believed against the subsequent non-kosher witnesses. Because the Gemara is clear that in that case, he has the status of two kosher witnesses. So the non-kosher witnesses are not able to contradict him. So when the Ravid says in that case that all the witnesses just cancel each other out, he must be talking about bevas achas when they all came at once before anyone's testimony was accepted. So now if we go to the second case, if according to the Ravid, we're talking about bevas achas, so then we're right back to the original problem. If all the witnesses in this case come at the same same time, so then they always cancel each other out. How can the Ravid say that if the non-kosher witnesses come first, so then we believe them against the Eid Echad when they all came at the same time? And the Gemara says when they come at the same time, they all cancel each other out. So Rab Chaim says the only way to make sense of these questions of the Ravid is that he understood the halacha in the Rambam is talking about both cases when they come bivas achas at the same time as well as bizacharzeh one after the other. So that's why the Ravid is asking two different questions. One is on the case of bivas achas and the other is on the case of zacharzeh because according to the Ravid they're both being discussed in this halacha. But says Rab Chaim that's a very forced way to read the Ravid. So in order in order to explain this comment of the Ravid, Rab Chaim, as is his way, tries to understand the conceptual underpinnings of this whole concept. And he begins with a comment in the Yerushalmi, in Sota, According to the Yerushalmi, any place in Halacha where a woman's testimony is believed, so the rule is that a woman could contradict a man, and a man could contradict a woman. So the Yerushalmi 
Rami seems to be saying very clearly that in these cases where you don't need two kosher witnesses, even a woman's testimony is believed. So in those cases, there is no difference between a kosher versus a non-kosher witness. They all have the exact same status. So if so, says Rab Chaim, why is the rule that one kosher witness can contradict multiple non-kosher witnesses? If they all have the same status, so what does it matter if this person is a kosher witness or not? We should just purely follow the numbers. Forget about whether this person is technically a kosher witness or not. Because in this case, we don't need a kosher witness. Both the kosher and non-kosher witness have the same status. So what does it matter who the person is? It should just purely follow whichever side has more numbers, more witnesses, regardless of whether they're kosher or not. And in fact, says Rab Chaim, the same basic question you could ask on our Gemara, the Bavli as well, which says that when there's multiple non-kosher witnesses versus one kosher witness, so they all have equal status. So it's very clear that in these exceptional cases, non-kosher witnesses are able to contradict, they have the power to go up against even kosher witnesses. So once we know that, why shouldn't we follow the majority opinion, which is the non-kosher witnesses? Let's say there's three non-kosher witnesses against the kosher witness. So since we know that the non-kosher witnesses do have standing in this case, so we should follow the majority opinion. So why does our Gemara say that they all have equal standing, meaning the one kosher witness has equal standing to the non-kosher witnesses? Why don't we follow the majority opinion in that case? So in order to explain all this, Rab Chaim again reviews one of the major themes from his previous two pieces, which is that when one kosher witness gives testimony, he's accepted not just as ne'emanus, that we believe what he said, but he's actually accepted as an aide. He's considered a full-fledged witness, even though ordinarily you need two witnesses, but in this case, one witness is considered a full testimony. And the proof for this is the Rambam in Hochus if there was a woman that was cleared by the Sota waters and then one kosher witness came and said that she had committed adultery and it turned out that he was an aid zomeim. So two witnesses came and they proved that he was not there at that time. He could not have known about it. So now we have one aid who's an aid zomeim. The rule of aid zomeim is that he has to pay or do the punishment that he he was trying to inflict on the person. So too, in this case, says the Rambam, Mishalen Ksubasa, he has to pay the woman the value of her Ksuba. So since he was trying to get her to lose her Ksuba by saying she committed adultery, so here he has to pay her Ksuba. So you see that the concept of Eid Zomeim applies to the one witness who testified in the case of a Sota. Now, according to Rab Chaim, there cannot be an Eid Zomeim if someone just has Ne'emanus, they have believability. They have to have the status of an actual testimony of actual edus in order to apply the rules of Eid Zomeim. So the fact that the Rambam applies Eid Zomeim to the one witness in the case of Sota tells us that he's considered a real testimony, not just that he's believed.
Likewise, the Gemara in Shavuos says that in these cases of the one witness who's believed, if he denies that he knows anything about it, and he swears to that, and then it turns out that he swears falsely, so there's a special carbon Shavuos Ha'edos, a special sacrifice that a witness brings in those cases, and that applies to this one witness. So if one witness swears that he doesn't know anything about a Sota committing adultery, and he swore falsely, he has to bring that carbon. Now the carbon only applies if it's real testimony. If it's just that we believe this person, but they're not considered an aid, so there would be no carbon. So the fact that the Gemara says in that case, there is the regular carbon of Shvuas Ha'edus, means that this one witness is considered a full-fledged aid. So those are Rab Chaim's proofs that when one kosher witness comes in these cases, even though we're making an exception and accepting the testimony of one witness without requiring two, but still it has the full fledged status of edus, of testimony, not just that he's believed in what he's saying which is different than the non-kosher witnesses, even though they too are believed. So there's an exception in these cases that will believe what they say, but they do not have the status of testimony. So what they say is believed, but in a different way than what the one kosher witness says. So now applying this framework, we can answer some of the questions Rab Chaim posed. When the Yushalmi says that in these cases, a man and a woman's testimony are equal, it means because because since we believe the woman's testimony, so she's able to contradict the man's testimony, even though there's a difference that the man's testimony is considered edus and the woman's is different. It's believed without being edus, but that distinction is just theoretical. It doesn't make a practical difference because on a practical level, we do believe both of them. So the fact that it works differently doesn't really make a difference because when they contradict each other, they have equal standing. But all of that is when we're trying to ascertain what actually happened. So when we're trying to figure out the details of this situation, so in that case, on a practical level, we believe both sides. But if we compare the two testimonies to each other, so then the kosher witness does have a leg up because his testimony is considered edus, so it's a higher status than the non-kosher witness who's just believed without being edus. So whether or not the man's testimony is stronger than the woman's is going to depend on the perspective. If we're evaluating what actually happened, so then they each have equal standing as the Yushalmi said. But if we're comparing the two testimonies to each other, so then the man's does have an added element that the woman's does not. So now if we apply this into a case where one kosher witness is contradicting multiple non-kosher witnesses, so if the issue is whether there's a suffix, whether we're uncertain about what happened, so that's certainly the case because since there are two sides with equal standing, and we believe both of them and they're saying opposite things. So there is certainly a suffix. We don't know what happened in this situation. But if we want to go a step further and we want to say that the testimony of the kosher witness is negated, it's nullified. So in order to do that, we need a stronger testimony than his testimony. So that can't happen through the testimony.
testimony of the non-kosher witnesses because they're missing the element of edus. So the one kosher witness still has something that they don't have, which is that his testimony has the status of edus and theirs does not. So they are not going to be able to negate his testimony and get rid of it. So again, when we have a case where non-kosher witnesses contradict one kosher witness, so if we're evaluating what actually happened, so at this point we don't know because both sides are believed and they're contradicting each other. So there's now a suffix in what story actually happened. But if we're evaluating which testimony survived this whole contradiction, so then the kosher witness has a leg up because he has an element to his testimony that the non-kosher witnesses don't have. So they're not able to negate that element of edus that the one kosher witness has. And Rab Chaim adds that in truth, this distinction between the witness being believed about the story itself, but not to contradict other testimony, so not for hachasha, that whole distinction is built into the very halacha of one kosher witness himself. Because it seems that the kosher witness is only believed to testify about what happened. But if his testimony is to contradict another kosher witness or even a non-kosher witness, so there he has no special believability. He does not have the status of two witnesses. So it's not considered valid testimony. So even within the case where one kosher witness is testifying, we have this distinction built in that he's believed to testify as to what happened, but he's not believed to contradict another testimony. Now, even though the one kosher witness is not believed to contradict testimony, but once he testifies, the only way to contradict, to be machish, his testimony is with two kosher witnesses, because that's built into the whole concept that once the Torah believed his testimony, so the only way to override it is with two valid witnesses who testify against it. But that does not indicate that the one kosher witness has believability in terms of contradicting another testimony. It's just that once his testimony is accepted, so the only way to displace valid testimony in halacha is with two witnesses. So we see that this distinction between hachasha versus being believed is built into the one witness and it also applies to the non-kosher witnesses. They are believed, but they are not able to contradict or go against even one kosher witness. So now this is going to answer Rab Chaim's question on the Yerushalmi. Why is it that if the kosher and non-kosher witness are both believed when there's a majority of non-kosher witnesses, they don't override the testimony of the kosher witness? Says Rab Chaim, based on this conceptual framework, it makes sense. Even though both the kosher and non-kosher witnesses are believed about the story, so if a man and a woman give conflicting testimony, they're both believed, it's like Palga upalga, they both contradict and nullify each other's testimony. But even though that's correct, it doesn't change even when there's a majority of non-kosher witnesses conflicting with the one kosher witness. Because we still apply the same rule that since they're coming to negate his original testimony, the only way to do that is with two kosher witnesses. These non-kosher witnesses have no ability to be machish, to negate, to contradict the earlier testimony of the kosher witness, which was accepted. So in that case, we're not going to follow, even though they're a majority, the non-kosher witnesses. So this explains why one kosher witness
witness versus one non-kosher witness is going to play out exactly the same as one kosher witness versus multiple non-kosher witnesses. Because the non-kosher witness's ability to negate the one kosher witness does not improve even though they're in the majority. They need a valid testimony in order to negate his original testimony. And that can only be done with two kosher witnesses. Now, Rab Chaim points out at the end of the paragraph that this whole explanation is not so simple because in fact, there is another view in the Gemara and Sota which holds that when there are two women contradicting one man, we do follow the view of the two women. So we do follow the majority even though they're non-kosher witnesses against the one kosher witness. So that goes against Rab Chaim's whole explanation. He's been explaining the other view in the Gemara that two women against one man, they all cancel each other out. So Rab Chaim explains that what that other view in the Gemara and Sota holds is that even though the one kosher witness does have edus, so he is able to give testimony, but that's not why we believe him in the rules of Egla Rufa or Sota. And this idea is based on the language of the Rambam in Sota Aleph Tesvav, Afilu Ishav, Afilu Karov, even a woman witness or even a relative, Neman Edus Sota, are believed when it comes to Sota to say that she committed adultery. Because since the Torah believed one witness in the case of Sota to say that she committed adultery, so everyone is valid, even non-kosher witnesses. So the Rambam says very clearly that the way we know non-kosher witnesses like relatives or women are believed in the testimony of Sota is because the Torah allowed one witness to be believed. So the case of one witness and the case of non-kosher invalid witnesses are all derived from the same concept because they're basically the same idea. Once the Torah suspended the basic rule that testimony requires two kosher witnesses and it allowed one kosher witness, so from there we can extrapolate and figure out that any testimony is going to be believed even if it's one non-kosher witness. So the Rambam is telling us that the case of one kosher witness and the case of one non-kosher witness are effectively the same thing. So that's why the Gemara in Sota in that view believes that even though one kosher witness does have a stronger power than non-kosher witnesses, but that's all on a theoretical level. When it came to Sota and Egla Rufa, the Torah is explicitly saying that we do not accept the testimony as edus, we accept it as ne'emmanus, as believability, and that's regardless of whether it comes from a kosher witness or a non-kosher witness. Everybody's testimony is believed as ne'emmanus, so then if there's two non-kosher witnesses against one kosher witness, we're going to follow the majority of opinions because they all have equal validity and status in terms of their testimony. Everybody was believed, there was no edus, even from the one kosher witness, so the two non-kosher witnesses are more powerful than the one kosher witness. That's what that view in the Gemara holds. Now, the other view that disagrees and holds that two women against one man, they all cancel each other out. It's like palga upalga. So that view holds like Rab Chaim's initial explanation that the one witness is believed as edus. It's not just believability, but he does have the status of real halachic testimony. So that's why the two women who testify against him cannot 
overcome his testimony, even though they have a majority of opinions, but he has something that they don't have, which is his testimony is edus. They only have nemanus, so they're not able to cancel out his testimony, so they all cancel each other out. So according to Rab Chaim, both views in the Gemara agree with the basic framework, the way he set it up, that one witness has edus as opposed to non-kosher witnesses, which are missing edus. They only have nemanus. The debate in the Gemara is why did the Torah believe one witness for Sota and Egla Rufa? Did it give him the status of Eidos or he has the status only of Namanus, even though theoretically he could have had Eidos? And the distinction is going to be if there's a majority of non-kosher witnesses against this one Eid Echad, do we follow the majority of the non-kosher witnesses' opinions or do they all cancel each other out because they're unable to get rid of the Eidos which is coming against them? So this is Rab Chaim's analysis to explain the difference between whether we believe the witness about what happened, the story itself, versus to contradict another testimony. And this explains the Yerushalmi and the two views in the Bavli. So now in the final paragraph, Rab Chaim comes back to the Ravid and he says that this conceptual framework is going to explain the distinction that the Ravid made as well between whether the kosher witness came first and then the non-kosher witnesses came. So it's palgo, palga, they all cancel each other out versus if the non-kosher witnesses came first that we follow the majority of opinions. So Rab Chaim had asked, what is the difference in the case where the Eid Echad kosher came first that according to the Ravid, we don't follow the majority of opinions, but rather it's palgo palga, and they all cancel each other out. So now, based on this, Rab Chaim explains that there is a key distinction between the two testimonies that are being given in this case. When it comes to Sota, and one witness says, this woman committed adultery, and the other one says, no, you did not see her commit adultery. Or in the case of Egla Rufa, one says, I saw the murder, and the other witness says, you did not see the murder. So so the first witness who says, I saw the adultery and I saw the murder, they're testifying about the actual story, the events of what happened, and they're saying that they know what happened. The second witness is not testifying about the story itself. They're only contradicting the testimony of the first witness because we don't care if one witness testifies she did not commit adultery or no one knows who the murderer is. Those are irrelevant testimonies because once there's a suffake, whether she committed adultery or who the murderer is, so that automatically necessitates the Sota and the Egla Arufa. It doesn't matter if one witness confirms that testimony and emphasizes it because there's already an obligation of Sota and Egla Arufa. So we don't care if one witness can testify that nobody knows the murderer or she didn't commit adultery. If two witnesses could testify that she didn't commit adultery, then that would be a different story. But one witness is not going to change the situation. So the only witness in this case who was actually testifying about the story itself was the first testimony that he knows that she committed adultery or who the murderer is, that would have changed the situation. The second testimony was not about the story itself. It was not going to change the situation. It was simply to contradict the testimony of the first witness. 
So now, the way Rab Chaim explained this halacha, that the Torah only believed one witness or non-kosher witnesses to give testimony about the story itself, not to contradict other testimony. So it turns out that only the first testimony has believability of the Torah. The second testimony, which was coming to contradict the first witness, there the Torah gave no special believability to non-kosher witnesses or one witness. So only really the first testimony is going to be believed at all, the second testimony has no ability to negate the first testimony. So now if we apply this whole convoluted framework back into the Raivid, so we'll understand all his comments and how he sets up all the different cases here. In the case where the one kosher witness testifies that he saw the murderer and multiple non-kosher witnesses contradict him, so we follow the one kosher witness because he has an added component that the non-kosher witnesses can never have, which is that the Eid Echad is Eidus. It's real testimony, whereas the non-kosher witnesses are only Ne'emanus. So they are not able to negate the testimony, the Eidus of the Eid Echad, and we follow his testimony. As opposed to the reverse, where the non-kosher witnesses say we saw the murderer, and the Eid Echad contradicts them. So there we follow the non-kosher witnesses, because the Eid Echad has no special believability to contradict the original testimony. The only thing the Torah believed is to comment on the story itself. But the Torah never said that one witness is believed to contradict other testimonies. So even though the other group of witnesses are non-kosher witnesses, so we might think that the one kosher witness is at least as strong as their testimony, but since the Torah did not believe him to contradict their testimony, so we're going to follow the majority of of opinions, which is the non-kosher witnesses. So that explains the distinction that the Ravid makes between when the kosher Eid Echad comes first, meaning he testifies that he knows the murderer, where it's palga upalga, we do not believe the majority of non-kosher witnesses, they all cancel each other out, and there is an Egla Arufa, versus when the kosher Eid Echad comes second, so the non-kosher majority of witnesses testify that they know the murderer, and now the kosher Echad is contradicting them. So according to the Ravid, we follow the majority of non-kosher witnesses because the kosher Echad is not believed in what he's saying. So that explains that distinction. Even though the Ravid holds that we follow Rov Deos, the majority of opinions, so when the kosher Echad contradicts multiple non-kosher witnesses, we follow the majority because according to the Ravid, that is the criteria. When we're dealing with valid kosher witnesses, so two witnesses are the equivalent of a hundred witnesses. The numbers don't matter. But when we're dealing with these cases of non-valid testimony, so there's non-kosher witnesses or only one witness, so then the numbers are determinative and we do follow the majority. But that's only when they're not going against actual edus. So that only applies when the non-kosher witnesses are saying that they saw the murderer and the kosher echad is contradicting them. So since he's not believed, He's not considered Eidos, and their majority carries the day. But when they are contradicting the kosher Eid Echad, who says that he saw the murderer, so now he has Eidos, and in that case, the non-kosher witnesses are not able to displace the Eidos. So that explains the distinction in the Raivid. Now, the Rambam disagrees with the Raivid, because according to the Rambam, even when the one kosher witness testifies that the non-kosher witnesses did not see the adultery, or did not 
not see the murder, that's not just contradicting their testimony. The Rambam holds that that's actually commenting on the story itself. So the kosher Echad is saying in this story, no one saw the murder and no one saw the adultery. So once the kosher Echad is commenting on the story itself, he's not just contradicting the initial testimony. So now he is believed. The Torah believed one witness when it comes to Sota and Egla Rufa. So once the Eid Echad is believed, he has Eidus and the majority of non-kosher witnesses can't contradict and negate his Eidus. So that's why according to the Rambam, even when the non-kosher witnesses come first and they say we saw the murder or we saw the adultery and then the kosher Eid Echad contradicts them, according to the Rambam, that's not considered the status of contradiction testimony. It's not just that he's coming to contradict the initial witnesses, he's adding to the actual story. So once he's commenting on the story, he is considered Eidus and their initial testimony does not negate his subsequent testimony. So both testimonies cancel each other out. It's palga upalga. They're both thrown out and therefore there is an egla rufa. So that's why the Rambam disagrees with the Ravid in that case. The Ravid holds that we follow the majority of witnesses who say they saw the murder. So there's no egla rufa. The Rambam holds that the kosher Eid Echad has an elevated status because he gave Eidus. So we don't follow the non-kosher witnesses even though they're the majority. We cancel it all out and there is an egla rufa. So that explains the debate between the Rambam and the Raivid. And now Rab Chaim concludes that the benefit of this formulation is that in the first way he tried to explain the Raivid in the first paragraph, which was based on the rule of when the Torah believes a non-kosher witness, it has the status of full testimony. So the sticking point was going to be that the Raivid would have to be talking about a case where the non-kosher witnesses came first and their testimony was accepted and only subsequently the kosher Eid Echad came. Whereas the Raivid seems to understand the case in the Rambam is Bivas Achas, where they all came at the same time. So the benefit of this second formulation in the Raivid is that it works even Bivas Achas, even if the non-kosher witnesses and the kosher Eid Echad all come at the same time, according to this formulation, the majority is still believed. And Rab Chaim adds that that was also the conclusion of his previous piece. So this is a very rare reference within Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim Alevi from one piece to another. So Rab Chaim references that his conclusion in the previous piece is that the case of the Rambam is Bivas Achas. So that again fits in with this second explanation of the Raivid that both the Raivid and the Rambam were talking about Bivas Achas and according to this interpretation the Raivid still follows the majority because the Eid Echad is only contradicting their testimony so he is not believed in this case. So that's Rab Chaim's explanation for the Raivid's approach. The key conceptual ideas are really repeats from the earlier pieces. The first is the distinction between a kosher Eid Echad who gives Eidos even though he's not two witnesses. So he's not technically giving Eidos but once the Torah believed him he has the status of Eidos versus the non-kosher witnesses who are believed as Ne'emmanus but they cannot give Eidos. The second point is that the Torah only believed these non-valid witnesses to testify about the Sota or Egla Rufa story itself, not to contradict other testimonies. And Rab Chaim 
connects that with the case where one witness says that he saw the murderer or he saw the adultery and another non-valid witness contradicts the first witness. So according to the Ravid, the second witness is not commenting on the story because their testimony, even if it was believed, would not substantially affect this halacha. So they're only coming to contradict the initial testimony. So they're not believed. Whereas the Rambam disagrees and he holds that even though they seem to be contradicting the initial testimony, they are in fact commenting on the story. They're adding new information about what happened so they are believed.